prisoner down the hallway to his doom. I stood up to say goodbye like all the rest. And I heard him tell the warden just before he reached my cell that my guitar playing friend to my request let him sing me back home with a song I used to hear and make my old memories come alive and take me away and turn back the years and sing me back home before I die This is Lee Habib You're listening to I recall what I think is Merle Haggard's best song and it's my favorite and it is a sad song It's a beautiful song And for the hour we're going to celebrate Merle's life and every year we'll replay this on the day he was both born and died. He's one of those rare human beings who his life began and ended on the same day. And so to tell a story properly, we figured we'd let Merle tell it to you. And we love to do that on our American stories. No opinions here. I mean, you heard which my favorite song was, but that's not exactly an opinion. Let's talk about his early life and let's have him tell you about his fascination with trains. I lived uh, in, an, in an oil community uh, called Oildale and, and uh, there was a, a daily train that went into the oil fields and it was a steam train back in those days and and uh, I actually grew up uh, every evening, you know, kind of looking forward to seeing that old train pull out of there with about 40 or 50 oil tankers back during the war, you know, and, and uh, my dad worked for the Santa Fe Railroad. I was nine when he passed away, but uh, I think probably the first time I ever jumped on that old oil tanker was probably, I was about, about five years old. My mother would have died if she had known I'd been up there. We used to put uh, pennies on the track, you know, and we'd, we'd hop that old train, ride a block or two, and jump off. So it was something we we learned to do young. And we'd watch the brakeman and the trainmen do it. You know, it wasn't really all that hard. Very matter-of-fact about a, a pretty hard-scrabbled existence he had. A lot of the Okies had moved out to this part of California, the Bakersfield area. And a lot of people don't think of California as an oil state, but it still is. Drive up there, and there they are. The rigs are everywhere. And Merle, we're celebrating his life, the unique Bakersfield sound he created. Not really country, not really rock, not really anything but Merle Haggard. There's nothing else you can say. Or classic country. He had a bad experience on a train in Oregon. There was a lot of bad experiences. I, I, I got on a, a freight in Oregon one time, and it was leaving out of Eugene, and, and it went up into the into the Cascades and uh, into a snowstorm, and I was in, traveling in the ice compartment, and it, uh, me and two other 
oboes was in there, and it, it got rather cold in that metal. I remember they stopped up in the mountains and then uh, climbed up out of that ice compartment, and I'm shaking so bad that I dropped my suitcase off the top of the freight and I had to get off for a while to get, my, get her up in my clothes. <laughs> and as you're going to learn as we go along, this rough style of mix of music, that twangy fender, the unique mix of steel, guitar sounds, new vocal harmony styles, a little bit of jazz thrown in there, believe it or not. Almost country jazz. Had a lot to do with this life and the trains and the and the being an outcast in a bit in a bit of a way. Not really you couldn't put Okies living in California in a category. And they were outcasts. So why was he incorrigible as a child? I was a uh... To say the least, probably the most incorrigible child you could think of. I, I, I was just—I was already on the way to prison before I realized it. Actually, I was just—I was really a kind of a screw up. But uh, and I really don't know why. I think it was mostly just out of boredom, boredom, and, and lack of a father's attention. I think. Lack of a father's attention. I think. I think he knew that actually, and that father had died. When he was young. And that can impact a boy and impact a man and change everything. And we talk about that a lot here on Our American Stories. But as we'll learn later, Merle Haggard will tell you he could not have been Merle Haggard if he didn't lose his father. If he had not gone to prison. He was 14 when he was put in his first juvie home. The authorities put me in there for, for truancy, for not going to school. And uh, <clears throat> they gave me a... Six months in like a road like a road camp situation, and I ran off from there and stole a car. So then the next time I went back, it was for something serious. And then I, I spent the next seven years running off from places. I, I think I escaped uh, seventeen times. That's pretty incorrigible. And how did he escape from these institutions? There was different uh, different institutions and different methods. There was uh, some of them were uh, minimum security, some were maximum security, and some of them were kid joints, and some of them were adult jail houses. And I just didn't stay nowhere. I was just uh, I think Willie Sutton was my idol. If you don't know, you know, at the time I I was in a, in the middle of of becoming an outlaw and. Uh, Escaping from jail and escaping from places that they had me locked up in was was part of the thing that I wanted to do. And very matter of fact, straight as an arrow in his singing and his storytelling and even speaking about his own life. And when we come back more, this unique life, this unique American life, Merle Haggard celebrated more after these messages. We don't burn our draft cards down on Main Street Cause we like living right and being free We don't make a party out of loving But we like holding hands and pitching woo We don't like the hippies out in San Francisco do And I'm proud 
be an Okie from Muskogee. A place where even squares can have a ball. We still wave old glory down at the courthouse. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And Merle Haggard is the life we're celebrating today. Born and died on the same day. And a countercultural figure to the counterculture. That's what was going on in that song, in that space, in his country. And later, Merle would pull it back a little bit, saying, look, I I had no animus towards pot smokers, and I had no problem with people disagreeing with the war. But when you start spitting on my soldiers, when you start dishonoring the entire country, well, you're going to get, as he said, on the fighting side of me. That's another one of his great songs. So he's in and out of institutions. He's lost his dad at an early age. One day, he saw the light. No, no. What I was doing, I, I really kind of was crazy as a kid and then all of a sudden you know and, and while I was in San Quentin I just uh, I one day understood that I saw the light and I just didn't want to do that no more and I I realized what a mess I'd made out of my life and I got out of there and stayed out of there never to go back and went and apologized to all the people I'd I'd wronged and tried to pay back the people that I'd taken money from borrowed money from or whatever and I think when I was 31 years old, I paid everybody back that I'd ever taken anything from, including my mother. Including his mother, who we're going to talk about a little bit later. He was also lucky that while in prison, he was actually talked out of going on a final escape. I think that uh, these friends of mine talked me out of going on that escape. I mean, they they, they felt that I had talent, and they mm-hmm. they felt that I was just a honorary kid and and uh could probably uh, make something out of my life and and you know believe it or not in in the penitentiary just some pretty nice people and um very unfortunate people and they love to 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 let somebody uh so to speak get up on their shoulders you know they like to boost somebody over the wall if they can if they can't make it themselves they i think sincerely love to see someone else make it and then it was life after prison, and he had developed a talent for music in prison. He had developed a love of music. We're going to get into that in a bit, and him seeing Johnny Cash while he was in prison. But here's a clip of Merle talking about life after prison and getting into music. When I came out of the penitentiary, I went to work for my brother digging ditches and wiring houses. We had, he had an electrical company, um, Hag Electric. And uh, he was paying me $80 a week. This was 1960, and uh, I was working eight hours a day there. And and um, I got me a, a little gig playing guitar four nights a week for 10 bucks a night. There was a little radio show that we had to broadcast from this little nightclub called High Pockets. It just all started from that. Uh, uh, some people that was... Local stars around the, heard heard me on this radio program and came down and offered me a better job in town and it wasn't just a matter of weeks till I was part of the 
the main clique in Bakersfield, and it was hard to get in that clique. There was a lot of people like Buck Owens, and there was people that that were really good uh, and proved how good they were later on with their uh, success. And Bakersfield was some sort of a, I don't know, it was, it was like uh, country music artists found their way to Bakersfield and then and had the success out of there. I don't understand why, actually, and maybe because of the migration that took place in the 30s or whatever. There was a lot of people that came out there from Oklahoma and Arkansas and Texas that had a lot of soul. And uh, this thing we call country music kind of came out of those honky-tonks, you know, and uh, some of the same area that a lot of other things came out of. Yeah, he was right about that mix and that time and that place. And it's happened in American music many times. You had Seattle and the grunge movement. Look at New Orleans and the ascent of jazz, blues, Chicago, and the connection between the Mississippi Delta and these folks just going straight up 55 to Chicago. And the next thing you know, this city is the blues city. In New York, you could look at the heyday of jazz in the 50s where Miles Davis and John Coltrane are occupying maybe five to six square blocks of city space with the vanguard and and these, these spots where legendary jazz musicians descended, and so on and so forth. So how does he adjust from prison to success? You know, a lot of people may, may or may not understand how hard it is for a person coming out of an institution, you know, whether it be a prison or whether it be a, some sort of a mental institution, whether it be the Army or whatever. Um, there's a there's a thing that happens like when you leave the penitentiary and you've been there for three years you have friends and you have a way of life and you have a routine and and a a whole way of life that you just give up all of a sudden one day you're there and you're next day you're not there and you don't have any more friends from the outside because things went on when you left and you can't find anybody there and the people you left behind in prison uh, are you really only, are really your only friends and and uh, there's a period of adjustment that took me about 120 days, I don't know, about four months. A couple of times I really wanted to go back. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's really a, a weird sensation. It's, a, it's the loneliest feeling in the world about the second night out of, pen, out of the penitentiary. And this is what makes Merle special in the end. He's just forthrightness about things that many people wouldn't admit. I think it's why we love Shawshank Redemption. Uh, even if we've not been in prison, we've been in that place where we know something really well, and then we've got to go somewhere else. We're dislocated. I had immigrant parents. They always reminded me of what it was like to leave a place like Lebanon and come here. They said it was the loneliest year of their life, and they wanted to go back, and they were scared, and they were nervous. That's why when we see Red hanging himself in Shawshank, you can watch that once a week and still cry because there's a little part of you in that guy, and if there's not, there's something wrong with you. And so this is, again, what made Merle Merle. Let's hear from himself about why he thought he was such a special writer. I'm pretty ordinary, and, and the music is about ordinary people. And that's what made him special. And he believed it, and he lived it. And my goodness, he wrote about it. When did he know music might be something he was good at? Oh, I think I must have been at least 12 or 13 years old probably before I realized that that I might uh, I might have something that everybody didn't have and, and 
uh, I had a good ear, and I this, that violin teacher, when I was very young, remarked about my ear, and I, I remembered that. I knew I had a good ear. But uh, being without a great education, I knew that there, I needed a little help from somewhere, and music was the thing for me. I knew it was powerful. Again, we hear that over and over again, that, that word of a teacher, that word of one person. Remember, we did that Jerry Kramer clip where Coach Lombardi sits down, and I know you can be the best offensive lineman in the history of the NFL. And you hear Jerry Kramer 30 years later remembering it like he was a young man and how that powered him and fueled him. And just remember, your words matter, as Pat Williams always tells us. And that, that word of encouragement to somebody, it lasts a lifetime. And so what song catapulted his career? It was Sing Me a Sad Song, and here's Merle on how he got his hands on that song. I was working in a nightclub in Las Vegas, and Wynn Stewart was the band leader, and he had that song. He wrote it. And he'd had about eight or nine country hits in a row, and he was fixing to record that again. I, and I cornered him one night, and I said, hey, I said, Wynn, I said, would you, if you had a chance... And it was within your power. Would you, would you, would you make me a star? And he said, "Well, of course I would." You know, I said, "I think it might be within your power." I said, "If you'll let me have that song, sing me a sad song, I believe I can record a hit on it." Well, I did, and it and it went went to number nineteen in the Billboard charts. And here's that song. And again, the generosity of a man he knew catapulted his career. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More on Merle Haggard after these messages. She told me so. I'm unhappy without her. And I still love her so. Made a song a sad Sing it sweet and sing it low And then I'll have to go Sing a sad song and sing it for me And that's Merle Haggard, a distinctive voice, straight as an arrow, simple writing, a legend and we were just talking about his life in prison the special talent he knew he had that God had gifted him and a violin teacher had pulled it out of him and reinforced it 
There was another person who had a big impact on Merle's life, Johnny Cash. Well, when I was doing a little stand away from home, Johnny Cash came to the to San Quentin and played uh, there on New Year's Day, 1958. And uh, some years later, skip forward, I was doing his television show. And he was talking about his performance at San Quentin in 1958. He said, he, he said, I remember I wasn't even able to sing. And he said, I got a, a good response. I said, I remember that too. He said, what do you mean you remember? You weren't in my band. I said, no, but I was in the audience. <laughs> no, but I was in the audience. And here's Merle talking about a song that he loved, The Fugitive. Well, I was playing in Sacramento one night, and I'd had a couple of hit records, would say, that went into the top five. But I hadn't had a number one record yet, and uh, played in Sacramento, and this lady came to the show, and she had these songs, and she wanted us to go out and let us hear these songs and cook breakfast for us, and I didn't want to go, my brother talked me into it. Got out there and she sang me about five number one songs. And uh, The Fugitive was one of them. And uh, her name was Liz Anderson. And her husband, Casey Anderson. They were, they were songwriters. And, and so she was responsible for, for giving me my first number one song. my younger days While mama used to pray my crops would fail Now I'm a hunted fugitive with just two ways I'd run the law or spend my life in jail I'd like to settle down A fugitive must be a rolling stone Down every road there's always one more city I'm on the run, the highway is my home But I can't afford the luxury Of having one I love to come along She don't slow me down And bet catch up with me Or he who travels fastest 
goes alone I'd like to settle down But they won't let me A fugitive must be rolling stone Down every road there's always one more city I'm on the run, the highway is my home I'm on the run, the highway is my home And I love that Merle credits the writers, Liz and Casey Anderson. Just as Sinatra credited the writers, the orchestrators. Without these songs, Merle wouldn't have been Merle. You know, I had a friend of mine who was a traveling salesman, and he never went to prison. He never had a rough and rugged life. But this was his favorite song, and he always told me it was a lyric, he who travels fastest goes alone. And he, was just, he had a dynamic tension in his life. He wanted to be a multimillionaire, and he wanted to have a family. And the millionaire part won out, and he lost his family. And I think the appeal of Merle's writing is that it's not just literal, that you can understand and relate to just the very straightforward nature of how he wrote about loss, conflict, and love. Here's Merle on storytelling and songwriting. It's a combination of things that I look for, I want, I want to say something in a way that it hasn't been said, maybe, but still has a, a profound, it's still a profound statement. You know, we want to say I love you in a, in a different way. And I don't believe there's any subject that can be a love song. You know, to, if I could choose any subject that I could write about, I'd want it to be about love because... That's really what we want to write about, I think. Most current-day writers, I think, are trying to say I love you. Yeah, I think that's what we're all writing about in some way, shape, or form if we write. What kind of impact did his success have on him as a person? I don't know. I can't separate the personality from, you know, I am what I am. I do what I do, and that's it. I go out to the bus and... And I'm just dad and grandpa and, and darling, you know, to my family. And, and they accept the fact that this is what I do. And, and uh, I probably won't touch the guitar again or play again until we go out in the uh, middle of next month. Me and Willie go have a tour set in the East. And um, I used to play at home all the time, but I don't play anymore. And uh, so the family, I'm just uh, another old retired gray-haired gentleman hanging around the house. And how did darkness impact his writing? I look for those moments. I live for the moments that are spine-tinglers, you know, raise the hair on the back of your neck, little things that occur, somebody says at the right moment that explains a lot of things, you know, and you look for those things to write about. So it's, uh, 
I hope the door is always open when when something goes by, and I'm, I hope I'm aware, of it, able to catch it, and write about it. But that's an effort. Most of the songs that I've written that have been successful, you might say, were given to me. I mean, I I can't really remember sweating them out. Or, you know, they they kind of handed to me. And when we come back, we're going to hear about how one of the songs Mama Tried was handed to him. And we're going to talk about his mama before we talk about the song. Mo Haggard's Life, Our American Stories. More after this. Not feeling any pain at closing time. But tonight your memory found me. Couldn't drink enough to keep you off my mind Tonight the bottle let me down I'm from a poor family, and uh, when you lose half of the the house, uh, my father died when I was nine, so my mother was left with the entire operation, which wasn't much, but I don't know how I could be any further down than than I was. I mean, we were, uh, we didn't have no sidewalks, we didn't have no clock tower. And that's Merle Haggard. And this is the thing about America. Coming from almost any circumstance, you can end up almost any place. And Merle always had a sympathy and an ear for ordinary folks and for people left behind. Because he knows, but for the grace of God, go I. It could have been, well, his life could have turned in a hundred different directions. And a lot of them not good. And even in prison, he had help from prisoners who stopped him from making this final escape when he was at a prison where if he made an escape from that prison, it could have had dire consequences. So let's talk about those songs that he said were handed to him. What does that mean, having a song handed to someone? Here he is talking about another hit of his, Mama Tried. I don't remember writing it, but I did. I wrote it, and and it says things that are kind of silly and kind of profound, but yet they... They match feelings all over the world. Uh, people tattoo it on the side of their neck. Mama tried. Uh, I think a lot of people feel like their mother wasn't able to do all she wanted to, you know. First thing I remember knowing was a lonesome whistle blowing and a youngin's dream of growing up to ride on a freight train leaving town, not knowing where I'm bound, and no one could change my mind but Mama tried. The one and only rebel child 
from a family meek and mild My mama seemed to know what lay in store Despite all my Sunday learning Towards the bad I kept on turning Till mama couldn't hold me anymore I turned 21 in prison Doing life without parole No one could steer me right But mama tried, mama tried Mama tried to raise me better But her pleading I denied That leaves only me to blame Cause mama tried Dear old daddy, rest his soul Left my mom a heavy load She tried so very hard to fill his shoes Working hours without rest Wanted me to have the best She tried to raise me right, but I refused And I turned 21 in prison Doing life without parole no one could steer me right, but Mama tried, Mama tried, Mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading I denied, that leaves only me to blame, cause Mama tried. And what lyrics, despite all my Sunday learning, towards the bad I kept on turning. So Mama couldn't hold me anymore. And by the way, he puts all the blame square on himself, and it's not a lament. It's just a description. And it's why the song is so powerful still. And it's just a perfect story, and it's so economical, and it's so tight, and it's so simple. And try doing that. I dare you to try and write a song like that. You'll spend your whole life and never come close. Here's Merle talking about his mom. I can't imagine what she went through. No, I was... I've got six children of my own. I can't, I really, it's not just a phrase. I really can't imagine what she went through. Must have been awful. Must have been awful. And you had to see his face during this interview. And by the way, we're getting a lot of this sound from Dan Rather's really superb work here. Um, And he's done a bunch of interviews with artists that are as good as good can be. And so why do you keep touring and playing, Merle? Well, I'm scared of the loneliness. It'll get awful quiet, awful quick. If you want to be left alone, they'll leave you alone. People leave you alone. But you don't want that, and I don't want it either. I mean, we want to be what we have been all of our life, and we want to continue, and we don't want to ever die. And you know that's the, the next big event once you retire. It is the next big event, and it came. And we're celebrating the life of Merle Haggard, born and died on the same day, in his own words, as we like to do as often as possible here on Our American Stories, bring you these lives directly from the people who live them. Here's Merle on a subject I think we all know, loneliness. Loneliness is, is a terrible thing, and, you know, the older you get, the fewer people you know. I mean, you think about somebody 90 years old, they don't know anybody that's older than them. You know, and it's, it's got to be a, 
a much better life if you're Merle Haggard with uh, a big fan base trying to play and try to keep your craft up up to standards and I think that keeps you alive. It does for him. And he said, think about it. Someone who's 90 years old doesn't know many people who are older than them. And it's true. And by the way, we love, look, I love hearing the talk about millennials and millennials, and I'm hoping lots of millennials are listening. But my goodness, sit down and talk to a 90-year-old and sit down and talk to a 20-year-old. Who's more interesting? And it doesn't mean 20-year-olds aren't interesting. But too often in life, we push the 90-year-olds out. And here on this show, we're going to hear from old people and young people and every kind of person. And listening to Merle's, just Merle's raw emotion here is something. Here's Merle on the song Send Me Back Home and why he thinks it's one of his best songs. Sing Me Back Home is one of my best songs, there's no doubt about it. I think that even people that... uh, that have never been to jail know somebody that's been to jail and they have an imagination of what it might be like. Someone can arrest you for something you didn't do and you go to prison. If you weren't Dan, Dan Rather, you wouldn't get out. There's people in, in all over this nation doing time that didn't do anything. I think that would be a terrible thing. And that ended that interview with Dan Rather. And if you want to hear that in its entirety, and I think it's important to see it, to see the expressions in Merle's face, um, it's something. And uh, just Google Dan Rather and Merle Haggard, and it'll pop right up to the top, and hopefully we can really push a lot more views to that. And there was a great piece written in the Wall Street Journal by Eddie Dean called The Right Inside of Merle Haggard. I wanted to hit just a piece of it. And then we're going to go out with the song we started this hour with and the song that Merle thought was his best, and I I think it is too. In Footlights, the dour downer of an opening song on his 1979 album, Serving 190 Proof, Merle Haggard sings about having to perform on stage when the inspiration's gone. He was 41, and he looked like he was drinking plenty of hard stuff after his run of country hits had dried up. But the song is more than a lament about midlife crises and the grind of the road. It's about a crisis of faith. For Haggard, who died Wednesday at age 79, music was a sacred calling. Now he had to face the fact that it had just become a job. The muse had left the building. He later explained the song's origins. Minutes before a concert, Haggard was told that his boyhood idol, honky-tonk singer Lefty Frizzell, had died. He played the show and felt like a sellout to show business fakery. As he later put it in that song, quote, Tonight I'll kick the footlights out and I'll try to hide the mood I'm really in. This sort of candor was and still is rank blasphemy in country music, a business where bloodshot eyes aren't allowed on camera and a big smile at meet and greets with fans can often be as important as talent. It was this brand of to hell with them honesty that set Merle Haggard apart from the herd for his entire career. He was a child of the Depression. He was unafraid to write and sing about the Depression and about all other things. Loneliness, love, loss, and death. 
subjects usually swept under the rug in country music. And also subjects like prisoners and personal failure and alcoholism and racism. Merle Haggard's life. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Sing me back home before I die Sing me back home before I And this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And on this day in history, in 1862, the Battle of Shiloh began. It was one of the major early engagements of the American Civil War. It took place in the western theater of the war in the southwestern portion of Tennessee. The war had been going on for a year. In the east, in northern Virginia, the Union and Confederate armies had been at a stalemate since the southern victory at Bull Run the previous July. But in the west, the Union armies were making progress. In the months leading up to the Battle of Shiloh, Union troops had been working their way into the south. Kentucky was firmly in northern hands, and the U.S. Army controlled much of Tennessee, including the capital at Nashville. Shiloh took place near a place called Pittsburgh Landing, Tennessee, near the Mississippi border. Winston Groom, military historian, the author of Shiloh, 1862, and coincidentally, the author of Forrest Gump, describes the setting in a National Geographic live lecture. Before the war, Pittsburgh Landing was a remote hog and cotton steamboat dock on the Tennessee River. But the battle took its name, actually, from the Shiloh Church, a chink-and-mortar log meeting house, not much better than a respectable Iowa corn crib, but it was a house of God. And ironically, in Hebrew, its name means place of peace. After the Battle of Bull Run, the only other battle so far in the war, people were horrified at 5,000 casualties at Bull Run. Then came Shiloh, with upwards of 25,000 casualties, and set the stage for things to come. Tactics and strategy in the Civil War had not kept up with advances in weaponry. There's an old military maxim that says generals always fight the last war, which is quite true during the first years of the American Civil War. Military textbooks of the day preached Napoleonic tactics that were 50 years outmoded, that called for armies to march with the most men to the sound of the guns. Mostly, they marched to the slaughterhouse. The Union commander at Shiloh is General Ulysses S. Grant, who is just rising to prominence. Winston Groom describes Grant's unusual path to the command of his army. 
Grant was from Illinois, where his father kept a tannery in a slaughterhouse, and from a young age, Grant was revolted by the sight of blood. At West Point, he was an indifferent student, and when he entered the service, it was in the Quartermaster Corps, hardly a conspicuous branch of the service. But during the Mexican War, Grant stood out and distinguished himself for his personal bravery in battle. But afterward, at a series of army posts in California, Grant gained a reputation as a drunkard, and ultimately he was forced to resign from the service. In civilian life, he continued to fail. He failed as a farmer, he failed as a businessman. Finally, he took a job as a last resort in his father's leather goods store in Illinois, which was where war found him. He was given a job at first training state troops. More explicitly, he was asked to take over a regiment of volunteers who were described by the governor as a mob of chicken thieves led by a drunkard. <laughs> Amazingly, Colonel Grant whipped these miscreants into shape and was given more regiments which formed a brigade and he became a brigadier general. He soon distinguished himself by taking a small army to capture the rebel forts Henry and Fort Donaldson on the Tennessee and Cumberland rivers, respectively, which opened those waterways to Union vessels, and then, using Union gunboats and steam transports, he pushed south until he came to Pittsburgh Landing. Grant's army now consisted of about 50,000 men. His instructions were, to wait at Pittsburgh Landing for Union General Don Carlos Buell and his army of 22,000, who were marching overland from Nashville. And when combined, their forces would be irresistible to anything the Confederacy could throw at it. But the Confederates were not about to wait to be overwhelmed by the combined Union armies. They were making their own plans just over the Mississippi border. Less than 20 miles south was the Mississippi town of Corinth, where the rebel general Andrew Sidney Johnston had gathered about 45,000 rebel soldiers. As his second in command, Johnston had been sent the delightfully named General Pierre Gustave Touton Beauregard, hero of Manassas and known as the Great Creole. The Confederates knew that if Buell joined Grant, the Union forces would be too strong to conquer. Johnson wanted to wait for another rebel army of 10,000 that was marching its way from Arkansas, but Beauregard urged an immediate attack on Grant, and Johnson agreed. And so, on an early spring Sunday morning, the Confederate army launched a surprise attack that pushed back the Union army. It was on April 6, 1862, a lovely spring morning. Peach orchards and dogwoods were in blossom, and the forest floor was carpeted with violets. In the Union camps, men were finishing breakfast. They were shining shoes or cleaning their rifles, or in some cases attending Sunday services. Many diarists remarked how many birds were singing that morning. There was not a cloud in the sky, but on the horizon it grew darker as the rebel host advanced. At first, the rebel attack was immensely successful. Union divisions had batted back more than a mile and thrown on one another in a fearful slaughter in a matter of minutes. Six 
a six-gun Union battery, artillery battery, reported 50 of its gunners were killed and all of its horses, except the reserve. Both flanks of the Federal Army were giving way, but in the center was a deadly pocket of resistance that came to be known as the Hornet's Nest, and near it the sunken road where the rebels expended themselves in attack after attack after attack, only to see their dead heaped in piles before the ferocious Union cannon fire. And when we return, we'll learn how the tide at the Battle of Shiloh was turned. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, and we're listening to Winston Groom, author of Forrest Gump, but also author of Shiloh, 1862. our American stories we continue are this day in history the Battle of Shiloh began in southwestern Tennessee the Confederate Army under the command of Albert Sidney Johnston launched a surprise attack against a Union Army under General Ulysses S. Grant before reinforcements could arrive the Union troops were thrown back at first but by midday they had dug in against the Confederate attack and then the rebels luck began to change Winston Groom, again the author of Shiloh 1862, describes the fate of General Albert Sidney Johnston at a place of strong resistance on the Union line called the Hornet's Nest. By mid-afternoon on April 6th, General Johnston was killed while personally leading a charge against the Hornet's Nest. General Johnston took a, on his horse, took a bullet, through the back of his knee. He didn't even know he'd been hit, but it severed an artery and he bled to death. The supreme irony was that only a few minutes before he had sent his personal physician away to tend to some Yankee wounded. If his physician had been there, he could have tied that wound off in a few moments and and Johnson would have lived. But General Beauregard now took charge and the fighting continued. By late that afternoon, the hornet's nest had been taken by the rebels, along with an entire Union division and its commander, General Prentice. At last, as the sun began to set, the Confederate onslaught had cornered what remained of Grant's army with its back to the wall at the landing itself. And the rebels prepared for one last great charge that would end the battle and destroy the Union Army. But this never happened. General Buell had arrived across the Tennessee River late that afternoon and his army began crossing on steamboat to supplant the thinned out ranks of General Grant's force. And as the rebels were gathered for a final charge, they thought would have ended the fight. Word came from General Beauregard to cease fire and retire from the firing line. Unfortunately for the Southern force, this new Confederate commander had remained at Shiloh Church, two miles away 
from the present fighting. He had sent a telegram that afternoon to Jefferson Davis in Richmond saying, the day is ours. Premature? Yeah. Beauregard felt that they had been success enough that day and he could easily finish off Grant in the morning. Imagine his surprise next day. Word got back that Grant had been reinforced with 20,000 fresh men on the field. So reinforcements came to the rescue of Union General Ulysses S. Grant, aided by overconfidence and delay on the part of the Confederates. And when the morning of Monday, April 7, 1862 came, the tide of battle turned definitively. With an advantage in terms of troop numbers, Grant counterattacked. The tired Confederates slowly retreated. All morning, the fresh Yankee army pushed back the rebels, first to their original lines and then beyond. About 2 p.m., one of Beauregard's aides suggested that they might best call it a day, and the great Creole agreed, replying, I intend to withdraw within 10 minutes' time. Thus ended the Battle of Shiloh. In one sense, it had solved nothing except to keep the coffin makers busy. There was no triumphal surrender, no capture or destruction of the rebel army, but Grant still held his field, minus about 12,000 casualties, and Beauregard staggered back to Corinth with about the same number of killed, wounded, and captured. Grant had escaped destruction by a very narrow margin. The more than 23,000 combined casualties were far greater than the casualty figures for the war's other key battles up until that point. General Grant was criticized as a result... His career suffered temporarily in the aftermath of Shiloh, but the victory was critical. Winston Groom explains why. If Grant had been forced to surrender, there was little between the Confederate Army and the great cities of the Midwest, Chicago, Cincinnati, even Cleveland. The state of Kentucky almost certainly would have been lost to the Union, and probably Missouri as well, a calamity. Lincoln would have been forced to pull his armies out of Virginia at the worst possible moment. And so Lincoln and the nation had Grant to thank that that did not happen. But, but, when the casualty figures from Shiloh became known, great scorn and shame was heaped on Grant by the press and by the politicians. While rumors spread that Union soldiers had been so surprised they were bayoneted to death in their tents, in their sleep, everyone was calling for Grant's head on the false rumor that he had been drunk during the battle. Apocryphally, Lincoln is supposed to have replied, if Grant was drunk, find out what kind of whiskey he drinks and send a barrel to the rest of my generals. If there is no proof that Lincoln actually said that, there is evidence, and I've seen it, that he confronted Grant's detractors with these words, I can't spare that man. He fights. I can't spare that man. He fights. It was a new beginning for the Union, which needed a victory after the failure at Bull Run the previous year. And more important, it was a new beginning for General Ulysses S. Grant. Grant went on to greater things at Vicksburg and in East to take command of all the federal armies and to face Robert E. Lee in Virginia. Grant 
himself had been one of those to believe that the war would be, be short and one great battle would decide it. Shiloh changed his mind. After that, Grant concluded that the war would not be won until the entire South was, in his words, subjugated or totally crushed. And that informed Grant's future tactics and strategy, most especially the fearful slaughter in Virginia in 1864. It had become, at last, a war of attrition. A war of attrition. There were 23,000 casualties at the Battle of Shiloh, a stunning number for that time, and that was just the beginning. Later in 1862, there were 22,000 more casualties at the Second Battle of Bull Run in Virginia, and another 22,000 at the Battle of Antietam in Maryland. In 1863, there were 37,000 casualties at the Battle of Vicksburg, and 51,000 casualties at the Battle of Gettysburg. 620,000 American soldiers, Union and Confederate, died in the Civil War, more by far than any war the United States ever fought, including World War II. So what did America learn from the Battle of Shiloh? Winston Groom explains. One of the significant things about Shiloh, and there are many, is that it was so utterly shocking to the nation, to both nations, as it were, at the time. For the first time, it showed Americans on both sides that the war would not be over by Christmas, as the common saying went. It showed that there was no dainty or shrewd military maneuver that was going to put an end to the conflict. Instead, people began to realize that by starting a civil war, they had unleashed a vast monstrosity, a sort of long-term corpse factory that was going to drench the country in blood for years to come. If there is any overarching significance to that battle, I, I think it might be this. That once again it demonstrates that Americans are an exceptional people. That they are willing to fight and to die if necessary for ideas rather than for conquest of territory and for ideals rather than pillage and plunder. An exceptional distinction by any measure. Indeed, and as always are this days in history are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you with their terrific Online courses, there are more than 16 now, I think 17. And watch with the family. American history, economics, world history, world civilization, it's all there at hillsdale.edu. And if you ever get a chance, if you're in that part of Michigan, stop by. It's just a beautiful campus and a beautiful place to study and learn. You don't have to be a college student to stop. Just stop. If you've ever wanted to learn more about anything having anything to do with life and American history. Stop at Hillsdale. And thanks, Beowulf, for the great writing and the great work. And thank you, too, Winston Groom. This is Our American Stories, The Battle of Shiloh, This Day in History, in 1862.
This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the Soggy Bottom Boys and their rendition of Man of Constant Sorrow from the O Brother Where Art Thou soundtrack. And it's a great soundtrack, a great movie, a funny movie, one of my favorite Cone Brothers movies. And now it's time for our story, the song segment. We love this segment. We've done a whole bunch. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to them all. Jesus Take the Wheel, Georgia on My Mind, Another Brick in the Wall, Part 2, Riders on the Storm with Ray Manzarek. It's a tutorial, and it's just superb. And last but not least, I think everyone's favorite here, if you haven't heard it, the story of the making of Gimme Shelter, and particularly the haunting background vocals by Mary Clayton. It's terrific, and you'll love it. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org, story of a song. In the opening scene of this great movie that we were just talking about, we see the Soggy Bottom Boys escaping a prison chain gang across a cornfield in the sweltering southern heat. As the credits roll, an old song begins to play with lyrics full of silliness and fantasy. Here's Jesse with the story of a song in Big Rock, Candy Mountain. Big Rock Candy Mountain, first recorded by Harry McClintock in 1928, is a folk song about a hobo's idea of paradise. And he wrote it for an album titled Hallelujah, I'm a Bum. Also known as Haywire Mac, McClintock was a singer-songwriter and poet born in Knoxville, Tennessee in 1882. His drifting began when he ran away from home as a boy to join the circus. He railroaded in Africa, worked as a seaman, saw action in the Philippines as a civilian mule train packer, supplying American troops with food and ammunition, and in 1899 found himself in China as an aide to a newsman covering the Boxer Rebellion. Back in the States, he hired out to the Pittsburgh-Fort Wayne and Chicago Railway in the Pittsburgh area, and from there he took the Boomer Trail as a railroader and minstrel. Mac lived an adventurous life and never lost his sense of humor. His song Big Rock Candy Mountain in 1928, much later featured in the 2000 movie Old Brother or Art Thou, reached number one on Billboard's Hillbilly Hits chart in 1939. Who knew there was such a thing? Having worked as a cowboy himself, McClintock was one of the few country singers who had an authentic background from which to draw. One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning, down the track came a hobo hiking, and he said, boys, I'm not turning. I'm headed for a land that's far away, beside the crystal fountains. So come with me, we'll go and see the big rock candy mountain. It's a place where hens lay soft-boiled eggs, and there are cigarette trees around every corner. Before recording the song, McClintock cleaned it up considerably from the version that he sang as a street busker in the 1890s. Originally, the song described a child being recruited into the hobo life. I've hiked and hiked until my feet are sore, and I'll be damned if I hike anymore. To be buggered sore like a hobo's whore in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. Those lyrics were not in the released version. And the song wasn't even popularized until 1939, when it peaked at number one on the Billboard magazine's country music charts. But it achieved much more widespread popularity in 1949 when a much more family-friendly version of the song intended for children was recorded by Burl Ives. Oh, the buzzing of the bees and the cigarette trees, the soda water fountain, where the lemonade springs and the bluebird sings in that big rock candy mountain. Now, even though they got rid of the booze references, at least they still had cigarette trees. 
Now fast forward to modern times, and this is what the song has become today. In the big rock candy mountains, there's a land that's fair and bright, where the goodies grow on bushes, and you sleep out every night. Now there's nothing wrong with making things a little family friendly, but this is just torture. But there were some other noteworthy versions of this old time hit. Even Johnny Cash was fond of the Big Rock Candy Mountain. One sunny day in the month of May, a burly bum came hiking down the shady lane by the sugar cane, a looking for his liking. As he strolled along, he sang a song of the land of milk and honey, where a bum can stay for many a day. And he don't need any money Oh, the buzzing of the bees in the cigarette trees The soda water fountain The lemonade springs where the bluebird sings On the big rock candy mountain On the big rock candy mountain All the cops have wooden legs The bulldogs all have rubber teeth And the hens lay soft-boiled eggs The farmer's trees are full of fruit Their barns are full of hay Now I want to go where there ain't no snow And the sleet don't fall and the wind don't blow And a bum can sleep all day Now, it's been recorded by many artists throughout the world, but one particularly grandiose version, recorded in 1960 by Dorsey Burnett, to date was the biggest success for the song in the post-1954 rock era, having reached number 102 on Billboard's charts. Up in the big rock candy mountain, the cops have wooden legs, the bulldogs all have rubber teeth, and the hens lay softballed eggs. The farmer's loft is a full of hay His wife wears a satin dress Oh well, I'm gonna go where the wind don't blow It don't rain, it don't snow In the big rock candy mountain But aside from the original Harry McClintock version of Big Rock Candy Mountain My personal favorite has got to be this unique performance by Tex Morton in 1939. Now in the big rock and the mountains is a land that's fair and bright Where the hand does grow on bushes and you sleep out every night Where the boxcars all are empty and sun shines every day There's birds and bees and cigarette trees and lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock and cluster of brightly colored hills just north of Marysville, Utah, near the Fish Lake National Forest, is named the Big Rock Candy Mountain. In 1928, after the song had been released, some Utah residents jokingly placed the sign at the base of the hills, labeling it such, along with the sign next to a nearby spring, proclaiming it Lemonade Springs. The Big Rock Candy Mountain Resort currently sits at the base of the hills and is a major hub on the Paiute ATV Trail. And that is the story of Big Rock Candy Mountain. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning, down the track came a hobo hiking, and he said, boys, I'm not turning. I'm headed for a land that's far away beside the crystal fountains. 
So come with me, we'll go and see the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, there's a land that's fair and bright, where the handouts grow on bushes and you sleep out every night. Where the boxcars all are empty and the sun shines every day. On the birds and the bees and the cigarette trees, the lemonade springs where the bluebird sings in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, all the cops have wooden legs, and the bulldogs all have rubber teeth, and the hens lay soft boiled eggs. The farmer's trees are full of fruit, and the barns are full of hay. Oh, I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the rain don't fall, the wind don't blow in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, you never change your socks, and the little streams of alcohol come a-trickling down the rocks. The brakemen have to tip their hats, and the railroad bulls are blind. There's a lake of stew and a whiskey, too. You can paddle all around them in a big canoe in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, the jails are made of tin. And you can walk right out again as soon as you are in. There ain't no short-handled shovels, no axes, saws, or picks. I'm a-goin' to stay where you sleep all day, where they hung the Turk that invented work in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. I'll see you all this comin' fall in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love music here on the show, and we love history. And that's why this is our favorite segment, and Jesse brings us This Week in Music History. Born this week in music history, American jazz musician and singer-songwriter Billie Holiday in 1915. One of the greatest female jazz singers of all time with over 100 records under her belt. And in 1961, the Marcells started a three-week run at number one on the U.S. chart with the Rodgers and Hart song, Blue Moon, also a number one in the U.K. The Marcells recorded this track in just two takes. And in 1966, John Lennon bought a copy of Timothy Leary's The Psychedelic Experience and the Tibetan Book of the Dead, where he read near the beginning of the book's introduction, quote, When in doubt, relax. Turn off your mind. Float downstream. 
This captured John Lennon's imagination so much that it became the first line of Tomorrow Never Knows, which he recorded five days later. In 1960, during recording sessions at RCA Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, Elvis Presley recorded Fever, Are You Lonesome Tonight, and It's Now or Never. In 1984, Marvin Gaye was shot dead by his father at his parents' home in Los Angeles, California. Charges of first-degree murder were dropped after doctors discovered Martin Sr. had a brain tumor. Grooving on a Sunday afternoon oh, wheeling Couldn't get away too soon And in 2006, this week in music history, Gnarls Barkley started a nine-week run at number one on the UK singles chart with Crazy. I remember when, I remember, I remember when I lost my mind. There was something so pleasant about that place. Even your emotions have an echo in so much space. The American duo made chart history by becoming the first act ever to reach number one through downloads only. The single was not available to buy in stores until the following week. But it wasn't because I didn't know enough. I just knew too much. And born this week in music history, 1913 American blues musician Muddy Waters. Yeah, bring me champagne when I'm thirsty. Bring me a when I want to get high. 
The Rolling Stones named themselves after his 1950 song, Rolling Stone, and his music has influenced Eric Clapton's career. I mean, Led Zeppelin's whole lot of love is lyrically based on the Muddy Waters hit, You Need Love. Muddy Waters died in his sleep from a heart attack in April of 1983, 70 years old. And in 1998, American country singer Tammy Wynette passed away at the age of 55. She scored 12 hit singles, including Stand By Your Man, and sold over 30 million records worldwide. Sometimes it's hard to be a woman. She was known as the first lady of country music. Also born this week in music history is a man who died this week in music history on the same day he was born, the one and only Merle Haggard. And that is This Week in Music History. And this is Our American Stories. Listening to the wind Trying to hear the voice of a distant friend Wishing you and I were close again Listening to the wind Listening to the breeze As it whispers through the poplar trees Do you think of me way back then? Do you listen to the wind Listening to the night Wishing we could hold and squeeze each other tight I can almost hear the stars so bright Listening to the night Listening to the sound Of a highway through some distant town I can almost hear the pale moonlight Do you listen to the night?
listening to my mind Searching through my thoughts for the perfect line Using tricks and telepathy at times Do you listen to your mind? Listening to the breeze As it whispers through the poplar trees Wishing you and I were close again Just listening to the wind 